I'm Greg Bettinelli, partner at Upfront Ventures. I'd love to introduce you to Steve Ballmer, chairman of the Los Angeles Clippers. I told Steve backstage that every year I get asked, like, who's the one person we need? Who's the one person we need? And for six years, I said, we have to get Ballmer. We have to get Ballmer. He's everything about LA and sports and tech. He's here a lot with the Clippers. And we got him here at the Rose Bowl. We waited for when we hosted Granddaddy of them all. So welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. Yeah. I'm super excited. It's kind of like, you remember those eBay auctions where you got to bid on having lunch with the CEO? I kind of feel like I won, right? So this is, don't worry about them, this is about us. So we'll kind of, uh, uh, no, but this is great. Super excited. Um, love this first talk. Obviously, we're in the Rose Bowl. We're in LA. This weekend, for those of you who've been in LA with the Kobe passing and the tragedy, um, I know you being in the, you know, as an owner, as well as being the other team in Los Angeles, um, talk a little bit about Kobe and the Clippers and Kobe and the Lakers and how you think about it for the an NBA. Well, first of all, it's obviously a tragedy. Um, anytime anybody dies that young, let alone the number of people who passed away, uh, at least the way I read it, you know, not only Kobe and his daughter and family, but there will be uh, at least one or two people who are orphaned as a result. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just a tragedy beyond tragedies. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would say in my perspective, uh, despite owning the LA Clippers and right. being a total LA Clipper fan, Kobe's got to go down as one of the top handful of players ever, at least on the stuff I care about. Yep. Competitiveness, determination, winning, uh, impressive off the court and on the court. Uh, I actually first got to know him as he was talking about venture capital deals. Wow. Okay. Didn't know him very well, but it wasn't through the context of basketball at all. Um, so we just, you know, stand here. A bunch of our players were deeply affected. They had played with Kobe. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, real tragedy. Yeah. After just digesting, it just, it's sad and it sucks. Like, and then everything else. And it goes from, but we'll move. And obviously, I think Kobe would want us to, to play as well. Um, let's talk about the Clippers. Uh, if we're moving, hold on a minute. You gonna you gonna guard me? One, two, three. This is unscripted. You're wearing a Pat Beverly jersey. You got to be able to make a shot from here, otherwise you may not be worthy. Look, PB plays 94 feet. It isn't just about his scoring ability. He's a grinder, a lot like me. He went to Arkansas, right? Like, he's our kind of player. Absolutely. Sweet Lou Williams is good, too. He's, I, I can't score like him. I have a deceptive three-point shot, but <laughs> you should have heard it. He actually was playing basketball till 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. 10 or so. Yeah, um, but now we worry about the Achilles and the broken fingers and stuff, right? So that was very good. Um, but let's talk about the Clippers. Yeah. Let's talk about the you could You had a lot of choices to do a lot of things after spending 30 years at Microsoft. Just talk a little bit about how you got into the, wanted to be in the business, and then how it actually became reality. Yeah, I would have said, well, first of all, as a kid growing up, you can't imagine having the resources to buy a basketball team. So this notion of people, uh, at least me, oh, I've always wanted to do that. No, uh, just outside the, the bounds of what I, I could dream about. Starting in 1988 or nine, uh, when Paul Allen bought the, who co-founded Microsoft, bought the Portland Trailblazers, he would say to me, Steve, Steve, you just gotta buy a team. Steve, you'd love owning a team. Well, this is post Microsoft going public, and I gotta say it lodged in my head 
partly because Paul was always banging on me that this would be something I'd really enjoy. Uh, the Sonics came up for sale in the early 90s. I had young kids. Doesn't seem like a smart thing to do to be CEO of a full-time job, being CEO of a big company, being a dad. Uh, David Stern said to me, unless you're prepared to have people give your kids shit, uh, you know, Sunday morning when you run into a brunch, you shouldn't buy a basketball team. So I stayed away from the Seattle team. Then it looked like the Seattle team was going to leave. I still had the darn full-time job, but we tried to help. Uh, you know, 2013, we thought we could get Sacramento. I was going to be a sort of behind-the-scenes partner. And then I retired. And my kids were mostly out of school. And the first thing I did, literally within two weeks after uh, leaving Microsoft, is I went and visited Adam Silver. I said, okay, it's time now. I'd love to own a team and move it to Seattle. And he said, well, that moving it to Seattle thing, that's going to be kind of hard. We, after Seattle moved, we decided it's really a bad idea for teams to move because you disappoint fan bases. So, you know, you could go look at the Bucks. They're for sale, uh, but they're not moving. That was discouraging to me, I will say. And I said, how about some of these teams that have you know, older owners? You know, even, for example, the Clippers. Uh, I love LA, I've always loved LA. I've loved LA since I lived here for a few months in 79 anyway. And he said, eh, that, that's probably not gonna sell anytime soon. And then the blow up happened in uh, April of 2014. And, it was kind of like the sun, the moon, and the stars aligned for me. Can you talk a little, I know that that transaction on the inside was not a simple one. More on the sell side, you not knowing where to go and who was actually, can you talk a little bit about just, because if you were in LA back that time, if you remember, there was a big blow up. Doc Rivers had been a coach a couple of years. It was just about the playoffs. I think he played the Warriors. Talked about boycotting a game. The previous owner had made some comments that were outlandish and turns out that he'd been doing that for a long time. But the transaction behind the scenes was something you could make a great 30 for 30 episode on sometime in the future. But let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a lesson that none of the people in this room need to learn, but I'll share it with you. When you have something that you want to sell, you usually have a clear path to sell it. You might have an investment banker, you might have a business development person, you do something. Well, this team, uh, basically, the owner didn't want to sell, the owner's wife knew she had to sell, and I wanted to buy. The only problem was I had no idea how to make contact with the seller. There was no investment banker, there was nobody out pitching it, uh, nothing. And literally, a friend of mine and I did a sort of a who do you know kind of thing. And we met a person who met a person who said, yeah, I can get Shelly Sterling to, to talk to you. Sterlings are mad right now. Uh, <laughs> wow. And so eventually, uh, thank goodness for me, it worked out. There, a banker did come in. There was a proper sale process. And I overpaid according <laughs> to almost all uh, discussion of the time. Uh, I would say certainly relative to my joy, I did not overpay. And I think relative to what's happened with valuations of NBA teams now, uh, not that I will sell before I die, 
but you know, I think our team is appreciated quite nicely uh, over that period of time. Were you ever going to lose that transaction? No. Okay. No. I had a boundary about how high it was going to go. My wife knew what my boundary was. I actually told the, the lawyer for the seller up front what my boundary was. I just said, Here, here's the number. Just don't take advantage of me. And the truth is, if I had to, I probably would have gone higher. <laughs> Labor of love. Let's talk a little bit about, like, you spent 30 years at Microsoft. Now you own the Clippers. Just organizationally, how different is it running, you know, Fortune, the largest company in the world you ran for many years from a market cap, to one of 30 of an MBA team that's not quite driven or run the same way Microsoft might have been? You know, first of all, let me say there's more similarities in, than you might think between the way a tech company works and the way a basketball team works. Most technology companies I know, there's kind of an engineering side and a business side. At the Clippers, we have an engineering side that happens to be called the basketball operations department and the team, and then we have a business side that really has to drive the revenue and, and do great things. Very similar to what I actually uh, experienced at Microsoft. And I think most tech companies would tend to have, if you're good, you have the two strong muscles. A strong business muscle, which many startups never really achieve, and I think they fail. And you, of course, have to have a good, a good product development team uh, and a good product, which, which we've done a good job so far with some luck uh, on the Clippers. That's a similarity. Uh, the old days, before software as a service, you used to do major and minor upgrades to products. The Clippers, we do major upgrades on the summer. We do minor updates at the trade de deadline. Uh, that means we fix our product twice a year because that's the time everybody comes together to do this stuff. So there are a lot of similarities. Uh, like most tech companies, I would also say uh, engineers are treated, uh, I don't know if I should say like gods, but engineers are treated very, very well uh, in most tech companies. Basketball players, turn out, are also treated very, very well uh, by most basketball teams. So there are a lot, of, a lot of similarities. The fact that there's only 30 teams means, while the business side is complicated, there is some, there's a, a, something of a lesser amount of competition on the business side. It doesn't mean that there's not a lot of scrapping and selling and clawing and you know, doing everything you need to do to have sufficient revenue to pay your players. But the truth of the matter is you have not the same kind of direct competition. On the basketball side, the competition is, in a sense, broader. What tech business do you know where you can have 30 credible competitors every year? Uh, it's almost more competitive in that sense. What have you learned about Clipper fan relative to, you know, you were in Seattle, you didn't live and breathe the Clippers as a kid, you're a Pistons fan, um, and obviously followed this probably Sonics when they were there, but what have you learned about Clipper fan, especially in a city with the Lakers, and the history, which was an underperforming team for at least 35 of the last 40 years? Uh, how many of you grew up in either LA or New York? Show of hands. Okay. Everybody else doesn't know what this is like. It's amazing. If you grew up any place other than LA and New York, you only had one team to cheer for. You name the sport, you had one team to cheer for. 
the whole community gets behind it. It's, it's great. People are fired up. Uh, it's weird to actually have, it was weird for me the first time uh, that it, you know, happened in my life, to have two teams in a market. You actually have to say, why should somebody be a fan of one team or the other? Now that's true, except generally one team also has incumbency. The Knicks in New York, the Lakers, uh, the New York Giants versus the Jets, the Yankees versus the Mets, the Dodgers, et cetera, et cetera. And so really deciding how if, let me say, you are the legacy number two team, how do you differentiate yourself to fans? How do you differentiate yourself, frankly, to free agents who you might want to have come work for you? Uh, and how do you do something that's consistent with the fan base you have today? Well, our fans, if you ask them, there's one thing they'll all tell you. I've been a season ticket holder since 84. I've stood with this team since 91. I believe I have weathered the bad days. Well, it defines kind of the culture and character of our fan base. Resilient, gritty, uh, determined. Otherwise, how could you possibly have stayed a Clipper fan since 1983, to be, to be frank? Uh, and so in a sense, that became the defining base because we do need to say who we are because the other team is just the team that's not just, they're the team that's won a lot of championships. So, you know, that became uh, obvious to us about two years, I'm looking at the Gillian Zucker who runs our business operations, I think it was about two years ago, that became very obvious to us. And then the question is, at the end of the day, your product also defines your culture. Your product meaning your team. And we were fortunate to have a team that also looked like our fan base. Tough, gritty, resilient, hard-playing guys. Uh, Pat Beverly, whose jersey that, uh, that Greg is wearing, or uh, Montrez Harrell, and now the superstars we've added, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. And that's partly because we've looked to add people with that characteristic, and we've been lucky enough that the superstars that we conv uh, convinced to come join our team uh, had that characteristic. So that's how I describe our fan base. And oh, by the way, I would have said, for me personally and for Microsoft in general, tough, gritty, long-term, determined. You fail at first, you come again, you fail again, you come again, you fail, you come, and keep coming. Uh, and certainly the businesses that have historically paid for Microsoft, you know, Office didn't happen overnight, Windows didn't happen overnight, Microsoft, this will shock people who are younger, had, credib had credibility problems up the yin-yang for about 15 years, becoming an enterprise company. Uh, Microsoft's got another battle like that right now in cloud platform work, but determination, commitment, and drive, I happen to very much appreciate, personally. And is that why Clipper fans deserve their own arena? You know, if you're trying to say, why am I different than the other guy? Playing in the other guy's same building, when people say, oh yeah, that's the other guy's building, I feel a little sorry right now for the Chargers. Everybody calls it Ram Stadium. They'll have some of the same issues. And so for us to have our own brand, our own arena, our own personality, uh, I think that's important. Now these arenas turn out they're really expensive. So I, I would say if the return on investment was a complete dog, I don't know whether we should have our same building. But uh, they are decent. 
they're not great rates of return. We don't see a tremendous rate of return, but I'm an S&P index uh, investor. That's all I do is S&P index plus Microsoft. And I think I could probably see the S&P index fund uh, in an arena. It's great. Enough. Not the kind of superlative returns that everybody in this audience gets, but. Right. Just one quartile of them. <laughs> that's that's a, by the way, that's the problem for an investor, either, even one who thinks they're semi-smart, as I think I'm semi-smart. You know there's many smart people out there to invest your money, and you also know half of them are going to be wrong. Uh, tricky thing for, for investors. Yeah. So you, you don't spend, <laughs> this is awesome. So, so we're so going to overtime, by the way. Um, so you don't just spend your time with the Clippers, though. You actually spend a lot of time on the philanthropic side, um, as well as with the, um, your own family office around doing initiatives that drive transparency to information. Can you talk a little bit about USA Facts? Um, I have a prop here, but you can talk about it when I throw up this 80-page document. This is the 2019 version. I'll, uh, I'll talk a little about it. Okay. Uh, after I left Microsoft, I would have called myself generally tired, not ready to sign up for anything new, uh, wanted to be busy, but wanted to keep flexible, if you will, with my time. And my wife said to me, look, dude, it's been great. You've been doing this Microsoft thing for years, but I've been focused on our philanthropic efforts by myself. You're going to come help me. And our focus is in uh, kids and families in the United States uh, where the kids are not likely to have, let me just call it a shot at the American dream, simply by uh, fact of where they were born and the environments in which, into which they were born. Uh, so my wife says, you're going to get on this with me. And I said, look, at the end of the day, government pays for all this stuff. So what's the real role of philanthropy, whether it's Medicaid or food stamps or many other supports for these families? And of course, she said, dude, we can do better than that. We, we have to make our unique contribution. Um, for those of you who have spouses or significant others, of course, that is what I wound up doing. But I decided I really wanted to understand whether I was right. I was going to prove my wife wrong. This was all really government-funded stuff, and philanthropy didn't matter. So I, I embarked on an excursion using my favorite search engine, Bing. Uh, <laughs> I'm a shareholder, man. I'm still selling. I'm, I mean, I work there, but it's a good buy. Uh, it's been very, very good to me, anyway. Uh, so. I started with my favorite search engine and said, look, I really want to understand how much money government raises, how much money really gets transferred essentially from more affluent people to less affluent people. And it was very hard to find the data. It's hither and yon, and it's almost impossible to see it rolled up and aggregated in any reasonable form. Uh, the question I kind of asked myself as a, a former CEO is, what would I do if I wanted to learn about a company? Well, if it's public, I'd go it's, get its 10K. 10Ks are beautiful. They're objective, there's no BS in them, you can't make forward statements. It's just about what happened. It's pure in an in a objective, comprehensive format. Uh, that was impossible to find, so I decided I wanted to 
go create a 10K for government in the United States. If you're going to do a 10K, you might as well do an annual report. And so we've been creating now for three years a 10K and an annual report. Greg has the, a, a printout of the annual report. And it is like, it really is like a 10K. Same sections, all government money is accounted for, not just federal, but also state and local. And since the, the goal of government is actually not to optimize the difference between its revenues and expenses, we also came up and picked out and found key outcome measures. We bring in so much money, we spend so much on education. Well, the output is how well educated are, are our kids? The answer to that is not very well educated, for example. Even though student-teacher ratios have gone from uh, 24, uh, call it 30 years ago, down to 18. So we're investing more and more in kids and we're getting not much better outcomes. And many of these things were interesting. People can agree or disagree on, on what to do. People can actually disagree on whether the outcomes are good and bad. But I don't think it's fair and right for people to actually disagree numerically on what happened in the past. That is, to me, pretty unacceptable. Uh, it happens we live in an environment today where people want to talk about fake news, et cetera. At least the past, by the number, numbers, by the way, are nonpartisan. Adjectives are partisan. Numbers are not partisan. Uh, and so we put this thing together. Now we also do some other, I'll call them products, off of our platform uh, to, to try to take focus topics and bring even more numbers around those to, to focus. Oh, and by the way, my wife and I were both right. Government does fund most of the assistance that goes to poorer families, and yet there's an important role for philanthropy uh, to fill in gaps that government does not pay for. You know what I found most interesting, because I think maybe it's, we're all feeling a bit vulnerable the last few days, is basically there's a lot of people dying that I feel shouldn't be dying. Did you see that in the numbers? I mean, I would just, whether it's prenatal or you know, birth, whether it's opioids and other drugs, like it's crazy that we don't see in this audience, but it just feels very, maybe un-American is the right term, but I know you've talked about that a little in the past. Yeah, let me, I'm going to say this in a completely non-judgmental form. It's very important because that's consistent with what we're trying to do. If you take a look at it uh, by the numbers, the number of people who die through some of the things and for some of the reasons uh, that we see in the press is a relatively small percentage of the number of people who die each year. It doesn't mean it's not tragic, it doesn't mean it's not avoidable, but it is a relatively small percentage. If you are government, you can look at those numbers and say, hmm, what, we, what can we do that's essentially free? It doesn't cost us more money. That's what they call in economics a Pareto optimal solution. All of those things should be done. If you want to go further, let's say provide more counseling services with folks with addiction and mental health issues. That costs money. And then somebody has to make a judgment. Can we save that money someplace else? If not, is that the next best use of government money? Or should it be in education or balancing the budget or, or wherever? Uh, and we put the data together and then people have to decide what they believe 
is the right next step because everybody's priorities are different. You will find people who would not prioritize uh, addiction issues. You'll find other people who, you know, they might prioritize uh, the environment. And even those things trade off in terms of government resources. We try to frame the topic for people. Uh, certainly from a philanthropic standpoint, uh, we do ask ourselves what are the questions that would be most important to solve if you focus in on this notion of uh, the American dream. So we have a few minutes left, and I think this is a tech. I could go talk hoops all day and talk data all day. But talking a little bit about what's happening today with technology, you, you know, spent a large portion of your time as leader at Microsoft dealing with gov the government and their view of what Microsoft should and shouldn't be. We're now seeing that come to fruition on the companies we talk about, you know, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Amazons, the Apples, not necessarily handicapping who's going to come out, but how does that impact an organization? How does that impact innovation? How would you broadly kind of recreate what we think will be happening over the next couple of years in this environment? Yeah, three or four things. Number one, there's no doubt that being subject to uh, uh, lawsuits, subject to regulatory pressure in a very visible public way, being condemned by your government for your, for your actions, that's a very difficult thing on organizations. It hurts people who work there who think they've behaved in a perfectly moral way to be called immoral. I, I can speak for experience when a federal judge ordered our company to be broken up. We literally went to a management retreat to talk about strategy and the first thing our sales leader at the time was supposed to report on what he saw in the field and he just got up there and said, I am a moral person. I am a moral person we must be viewed as a moral company. And we hijacked the retreat and spent all of our time talking about what that meant. So you have what, let me call morale issues. You have distraction issues. Because as soon as, quote, morality gets dragged into it, then people say this is the most important priority in our company. Not just because of survival or being broken up or being regulated out of existence, but it becomes the most important issue, and there is a distraction factor around that. I, I was telling myself most of the time it was not a distraction factor, yet if I look just at my own first five or so years as CEO, the amount of time I spent personally trying to resolve our issues with the US and European governments was very high. So it is a distraction. Number three, I'd tell people, engage faster and settle faster with the government than you ever think. Dragging these things out is not a very smart idea. You certainly want to resolve all these matters before you get anywhere near legislation. It is far easier to talk to a regulator who can get smart about the issues than it is the sort of brute force of legislation being passed. So I would sort of frame, frame those things up the other thing you have to ask yourself, because you will be asked, the company will be asked to do additional technical work. In the grand scheme of things, Microsoft certainly did. We had to document protocols, took a huge amount of time. We had to create new versions of Windows, took an extraordinary amount of time. I think in the world today where people are talking about privacy and, and essentially fake ads and fake news, it's almost harder 
the burden to come up, it's not as obvious what the technology is that should be built because you have to essentially understand what are the social norms and the that society would put on you. And the only legitimate spokesperson for that is government, which means you also have to recognize there is a legitimate role for society to express itself through its government in terms of where capitalism works. My wife always sort of, she's, she's not anti-capitalism, but she says capitalism has to be better. And I said, capitalism is perfect. It always does exactly what it's told to do. So government has to decide what it's telling it to do, and people have to operate in that framework. And I think that's going to be very important for, for a number of the companies you mentioned. Great. So we have another minute, and I'm just kind of, I'm, one last question, again, back to the more the early Microsoft days. You were not a founder, but you were early. You were the 30th employee in 1980. Um, you left Stanford Business School to join the team. Um, just talk a little bit about the dynamics of being the non-founder who then over time took a more active role. You end up being a core partner to the business, obviously, but were those dynamics and is there anything transferable to kind of what you learned in building arguably the most successful company ever and how it relates to a lot of things that we see and do every day as investors? Yeah. Uh, I was happily minding my business, deciding what to do for the summer between first and second year at business school. Bill Gates called, we were friends from college, and he said, you know, essentially, would you be willing to drop out and become our, our business person? You're the only business guy I know, so you can be the business guy. Um, I thought about that. I went and looked at, you know, consulting. I had offers from consulting and investment banking, which, you know, you get all puffed up and excited about that when you're in business school, because those are kind of glamorous offers. And I said, well, I'm also going to go talk to this, this friend of mine. He's got this small little company in Seattle. And everybody said, oh, you wouldn't do that. Are you, you know, you're not going to do that. So I went and saw Bill, and I said, OK, this is kind of cool. This is joining, quote, we were two and a half, the company was two and a half million a year in revenue, 30 people, but it sounded like a market leader in a business. I knew very, I mean, in a, I knew very little about software. I'd written some programs in high school and college. But Bill was the smartest guy I ever knew, and this seemed promising. Besides, these elite institutions, they let you drop back in as easily as they let you drop out. So it's really a very, I encourage people to drop out all the time because people will take you back. It's, it's, it's stunning how low risk it is to drop out. But anyway, um, if you have children, I'm sorry I just said that. Um, and my father, believe me, he was not down for that program. So I, I went and joined as the business person. And I would say our first year was very tough. It was very tough. Bill was founder and CEO. Uh, his partner, Paul Allen, was really kind of driving the product direction with Bill. And Bill and I had a lot of knockdown dragouts the first year. Very painful, actually. In the first month I was there, I told Bill the company was 18 people shy of what was needed to do all the work. Bill said, I didn't ask you to drop out of school to bankrupt this company. And you know, it's a little irony. I used to find all these little sheets around Bill's house. I was staying with him. We didn't have enough money at the time to put people up in hotels. And the little sheets had 
names of customers and names of people. Bill was, was paranoid about this, and so he'd write down every contract, every employee, and what they had to be paid to keep vetting that the company was going to stay afloat. Finally, after a month of brutal argument over this topic, he said, try to hire one good person, and then we'll figure out about the other 17. Well, when I left, we were 88,000 people more than that. Uh, and, but, but it's not an easy thing when you bring somebody else in. I don't think Microsoft looks like it looks without the combination of Paul Allen, Bill Gates, me. We were, we were the founding owners when we went from being a partnership to a corporation. Uh, and you know that was our block. I remember incorporating the company. We made the share count add up to 10 million for the three of us. And that was kind of the, the nucleus, and we built from there. Uh, in in uh, 2000, Bill asked me to take over as CEO. And I said, okay, all right. And I was a good number two. I, you know, okay, you make a decision, I'm, I'm there. So I said to him, do you really want me to be CEO, or are you just looking for a figurehead? He says, no, I really want you to be CEO. The next year was, again, miserable, miserable, uh, because I said, okay, we're, we're flipping roles. I have an accountability now for product strategy. And so the, the, the process of having multiple people really involved in the leadership of a startup or even a, a somewhat developed company, particularly if you start with very young guys. I was 24 when I started at Microsoft. Bill was... Uh, Bill was still 24 at the time, too, and you say, wow, we were kind of like a, uh, I would say, you know, we were over testosterone young men, is what we were, and fighting and yelling and screaming, some of which stayed as part of the culture, but really blending talents. And I'm sure all of you see it in your, in your portfolio companies, uh, for those of you who are in the venture business, really getting a strong technical and product presence and a strong business presence can be complicated if you really want the two to work together. If all you want is a sales force and product makes all the decisions, fine. If you really, there's an expression that was important to me over my time at Microsoft because it didn't always work this way. You want to build what you want to sell and you want to sell what you want to build. And oftentimes the sellers would make up products that nobody was building, and the product team was selling products that were making products that were unsellable. The only way to do that is to have a strong partnership at the top, and it ain't easy, baby. <laughs> it, it really ain't easy, well, even between folks who've known each other since they were 18, 19 years old. Yeah, it's also ain't easy to say goodbye, but this has been, uh, we do have lunch coming, and this has been awesome. Actually, uh, a big privilege for my career to spend time here with you, so I really appreciate that. Well, thanks, Greg. Thanks, all of you. Appreciate the time. Oh, one last question. Show of hands again. How many uh, Angelinos in the audience? If you're an Angelino, put your hand up. If you are a Clipper fan, keep your hand up. The rest of you are all potential converts. We'll be after you. Thanks very much.